Are you going to have anything final to say right before the injection? No, it's my release. They're not going to get no justice out of that. They won't. If, if anything, they'll leave angry. They'll say, well, that was too easy. There was nothing that... Is it going to change anything for them? When they wake up the day after, is anything going to be different? Now I'm not going to be there. Where's their focus of their anger now? They're still going to be without their child. They're still going to be numb. <laughs> Listen, living, listening to Synchronon. Sick and run. Yes, you're listening to Sick and Run. The Sick and Wrong, the world source for antisocial commentary. God, what a bunch of scumbags. Good evening. Welcome to Sick and Wrong, the world source for antisocial commentary. I'm your host, G. Simon. Hello, I'm the evil one, Kate Rambo. Kate Rambo. Hi, D. Hi. Hiya. Are you forgetting something? Um, probably. You have not told me Happy Hanukkah, and it's been like what an entire week. It's like the last day tomorrow. Oh. Are you just waiting for the last the last day to tell to wish me Happy Hanukkah? Well, let's spin this on its head. This is my first. Hanukkah as a Jewish person uh, by marriage. Where's my happy Hanukkah? Well, you, you haven't. Tell me. You te- you technically aren't Jewish. You haven't been converted. You have to like get in the rainwater oh, bath naked and blessed by the rabbi. No, no, I'm a Jew by marriage now. I'm very proud of my Jewish roots and all my ancestors that died in the Holocaust. I, you know, my heart cries, weeps for them. You my haven't ancestors. been dipped in the rainwater bath or blessed by the local <laughs> rabbi. I'm not even shitting you. There's a. It's called a mikvah. You I know. I've, dipped I, you know how I know it? In Sex in the City, Charlotte becomes a Jewess, and she goes, you know, she goes naked into the bath, and she asks if it was drained before she got in, and then she dips, and she's reborn a Jewess. I love how most of your life lessons are from Sex in the City. <laughs> it's just like the fourth or fifth time you've been like, well, in Sex in the City. <laughs> <laughs> I should rewatch it. What day is the dreidel day? It's all dreidel day. You do dreidels all eight days. Every day is dreidel day. Every day of Hanukkah oh, is dreidel cool. day. Yeah. You fucking get crazy yeah. bumping dreidels. But you know, it's uh, Baby Shmuley's first Hanukkah. In fact, it's his first Chrismica. So we're, we're discuss, we'll discuss that in more detail on the uh, holiday show this year. But just to give you a teaser, my sister, for the first time ever, been with Jer like 22, 23 years, is letting Jer and Shmuley get a Christmas tree. Was she not just going to have one last year without a tree? I would have begged for one last year. I think she did last year. Last year was the one last year without a tree. Even though I, I ordered her like this black goth looking one. She liked but, that one though. Eh, she didn't hate it. But it was it was like, you know, a smaller tree. Whereas now she's getting like a real, they're getting a real tree. Oh my God, Jer, after like 22 years of never, he is going to become Mr. Christmas. He is so happy. He's going to make her hate Christmas more than she already hates He is hates so it. happy. I think he's like ready to bust out his ornaments and uh, I don't know, put like, they put popcorn on string and, and sing Christmas. He's so stoked about it this year. We'll, 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 we'll have him on the show. We'll talk to him about it. Um, however... I wanted to get, uh, you know, because it's Hanukkah, I wanted to get Shmuley a Hanukkah gift, so I bought him that uh, singing cactus thing. Have you seen that thing? I have not. Tell me what this singing cactus thing is. 
Well, I read about it because Walmart uh, recently removed the dancing cactus toy that plays songs about cocaine use, apparently. Um, it's like this uh, dancing cactus toy that's a, a toddler-friendly musical toy that has a bunch of like pre-recorded songs in English, Spanish, and Polish. And they're songs that are designed for young children to learn. But apparently, one of the songs is, uh, is called Where is the White Eel? And it's a Polish rap song by uh, an artist named Sipis. Um, and it features lyrics about cocaine and death. Here, I'm, I'll play a little clip from it. Nice. Yeah, I actually kind of like it. Tylko jedno w głowie mam Koksu pięć gram Odleciec sam W krainę zapomnienia W głowie myśli mam Kiedy skończy się ten stan Gdy już nie będzie Catchy. Um, I guess what he's I was saying, into that. Yeah, what he's saying is it. the only thing in my head is five grams of cocaine fly away alone to the edge of oblivion. So it's kind of like sort of he's pondering his own. God, I miss I miss all the taking some coke. He's going to kill himself. Well, I, I guess Walmart's upset that kids might learn Polish and start singing this cocaine death song. So they they took they they took it off. They banned it. They banned the singing cactus. And so I was worried that other, um, you know, other retailers are going to follow suit. So I was like, I better order one as soon as possible. So I ordered one. It's like it's like a cactus. It's like a plush cactus that's maybe I don't know a foot, maybe maybe fit sixteen inches. And it yeah moves around and it sings. You can actually record your own voice, so you could have it swear yeah. in it. But it was funny because I I forgot. I think I was kind of stoned when I ordered it. But I forgot to give my sister a heads up, like, hey, you know, this thing's coming from Amazon. So she sent me a picture yesterday, and there, I guess they must have went to their like uh, PO box or whatever. And then she picks up and she goes, "What the fuck is this?" And it's this like wrapped up cactus. And I was like, "Oh, it's a singing cactus. Shmuley's gonna love it. It's gonna be his new BFF." I'm, I'm hoping. I do think as I become, you know. The years of being an uncle, and as as I grow, it smoothly grows me as his uncle. Every year, I want to buy him a louder gift. So it's going to culminate I, in like a drum set when he's like. I agree. 16. Fifth birthday drum set, baby drum set. Fifth birthday, baby drum set. Definitely. I I just think the louder the gift, the more um, Stephanie and Jared will appreciate Smoothie's abilities. Well, I have a very special present I'm buying him for his first birthday. But Electric we're guitar? Talk about it. No, we're only going to talk about it on the second show. <laughs> I can't talk about it in public. We have to talk about it on the second show. Well, the singing cactus is better than my original gift idea, and I'd say it's much more age appropriate. Because so. How does. Like, I don't get how product development comes from, like, some some creative types in a room going, right, we've got all this budget, we can make a children's toy, we're going to make an interactive children's toy to help them learn languages. Cactus. And what, and what can make them learn a language? And somebody just goes, cactus. Let's I'm just do a cactus. cactus. It's going to sing English. English and Spanish. Yeah, I can get behind that. Like, there's no fucking cacti in Poland. Well, Where the, did this, that come from? This product was made in China. So that's that's why. Like, they stole the rights to this guy's song. He's trying to sue the manufacturer, but he won't be able to do that. They just made right, this product. It? This is like marketing executives in China. It's like, let's just make something cute for kids. Singing Cactus that sings Polish cocaine rap songs. I like it. He shouldn't yeah. try to sue. He should, be, he should buy a ton of them and give them away at gigs. Well, he's probably got a lot of exposure from it. 
Um, yeah. But anyway, what I was saying is that the, the, the singing cactus, I think, is a little bit better than my original gift idea, and it, it's definitely more age appropriate. So you were telling me about this book, Death Row, The Final Minutes, and I, at first I was like, this is a great gift for Shmuley. He'll grow into it. He'll grow to appreciate it. But then, I don't know, afterwards I was thinking, uh, you probably appreciate the singing cactus a bit more at his age. Well, I'm um, getting him a Holocaust survivor's book for his first Hanukkah. <laughs> Every year he'll get a Holocaust survivor's book because we, we're bonded now. Me and Shmuley are the same type of Jew. Are there that Jew many Holocaust religion. survivor's books? Is it a picture book? There's bloody millions of them. My mother had a huge library and collection. Just like memoirs from survivors? Oh, yeah. That's how I first got into true crime. Because when I was about 10 or 11, I was like, because I used to read a ton, like way more than I read now. And I said, can I read one of these? And because they're a history book, she was like, yeah. And that's how I first Why'd your mom got have into all true these? crime. Seems like a weird she fetish. She loves that type of stuff. Oh. <laughs> well, it is type of, you know, she's a war baby. So she remembers all of that when it was just everywhere. But, but it's all like survivors accounts from people who survived the concentration camps. Yeah. She had, must have had about like maybe 15 books. That's and I read them all. a weird thing to be into and not even be Jewish. Well, but hey, you know, whatever. a history man. Hey, we saved your ass. <laughs> um so anyway it's a fascinating book death row the final minute so i bought a copy for myself and uh you you highly recommended it but it's about the uh, this this, this author michelle lyons was a journalist who over her career first as a journalist and then later as a like a, a kind of a spokesperson for the uh, texas department of criminal justice she witnessed almost 300 executions firsthand at the Texas State Penitentiary in Huntsville. Um, so you reached out to her and uh, invited her on the show to chat with us about what it's like to be in an execution, what, what it's like to witness 300 executions. Yeah, I can highly recommend this book. She's great. So let's play the interview here. We're here live with Michelle Lyons, author of Death Row, The Final Minutes. Hey, Michelle, this is uh, Dean Kate here from Sick and Wrong. Uh, thanks for being on the show today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Uh, so over the course of your 12-year career as a reporter and then a public information officer for uh, the TDJC, the Texas Department of Criminal Justice, uh, you've attended over 280 executions carried out at the Texas State Penitentiary. Um, how did you end up, like, getting, I guess, that, that assignment as a, as a new reporter? Like, was the execution beat one of the more undesirable ones? Like, how did this land in uh, your lap? Well, that's the thing. You know, it was it was definitely not an execution beat. Um, it was the prison beat um, because it, you know the the city of Huntsville is where the prison he is headquartered for Texas, and that's the newspaper I worked at. I worked at the Huntsville item. So I moved to Huntsville in 1998, um, and at the time I thought I'm going to stay six months. I'm going to work at the paper, and then I'm going to get a job at some huge newspaper and be discovered as the greatest journalist ever. Um, that was my plan. So when I moved to Huntsville. I knew the executions were carried out there and I'm, I'm born and raised Texan, but I'd never been to Huntsville really and was not, the death penalty just wasn't something I'd really given a lot of thought to, had not been impacted by it in any way, shape or form, 
it just, it, it was just there. And so um, in 2000, after I had been working at the paper for a couple of years, there was a woman who was covering the prison beat and she was leaving the newspaper. And so I took it on because at the time I knew that there were all these different things about the prison system that people just had no idea about. And I was thinking about there's all these industries in the prison system, you know, the, the um, things where like the, the inmates repair school buses and they go out to the, the low income school districts or they refurbish computers that go out to the income or low income school districts. To make I wanted points. to do all these feature stories um, and I knew executions were a part of the beat. And I knew in any given year, there might be 12 executions. I mean, sometimes maybe as many as 15 or 16. But in 2000, so the year I start covering it, there were 40 executions that year. Mm. And so my very first year of covering this, all of a sudden I'm watching executions. I mean, almost it seemed like once a week. I mean, there's 52 weeks in the year. There were 40 executions. There were some weeks that we were doing more than one. There was one night we did two in one night. Um, it was just an insane schedule that a lot of people believed uh, had to do with the fact that our governor at the time, George Bush, was running for president. And so there were judges across people. the state, yeah. yeah, setting these dates um, to put pressure on him. You know, it, it just, it was a crazy year. So, I was gonna ask though, where did the money come from from that? Because it costs a lot of money to put on executions, doesn't it? Doesn't it cost less money for them to keep the prisoner kind of alive? It's not the execution itself that is expensive. The chemicals are actually really cheap, or they were at the time. You know, now there's different issues with obtaining some of the chemicals, so it's different. But at the time that I was there, um, they used a three-drug method, and it was less than $100 to do. But you are correct. It is more expensive to carry out the death penalty. It's not the, the process itself. It's that most of the inmates who are going through all of those appeals are indigent. They don't have the money for legal appeals. So they have a court appointed attorney. And so if you're talking about filing all these appeals, you're going to the Supreme Court, things like that. It's the legal fees that really, really add up um, to where you're, you're exactly right. Keeping them as a, a inmate serving a life sentence is, is less expensive. But the problem too, when I first started covering it was that we didn't have life without parole in Texas. And so I think that's a, a lot of why there were so many people, because it's not that way anymore. At the time that I started covering executions, there were like 450 men and women on death row. And that number is now down in the 200s um, because now Texas does have life without parole. And so some juries are using that option instead of assessing death instead of choosing the death penalty so as yeah. the as a witness to the execution in your column or, or, or what you're reporting on do you describe the the proceedings in full detail including like their last words and and what exactly happened like who, who's the, i guess the demographic for this that's what i'm wondering well at the at the huntsville item you know it's a small community paper and it's north of houston so our philosophy was we don't need to be covering the the national news because people are taking the houston chronicle or the dallas morning news for that we were a local newspaper and so we were covering anything happening in the city so if you have an execution taking place obviously you're reporting on that and um it really was just reporting exactly what was happening. There was always background on the case. Um, when I was writing these stories, I would try and talk both with the prosecutor and with the um, inmate before he was executed. And um, at, the, at the execution itself, it was covering what is their last statement? What did they request as a last meal? Did any of the witnesses do something? Um, 
out of the ordinary, you know, where was somebody pounding on the glass or, you know, it was, it yeah, was just exactly to that? look at all the color of what's going around. So do you recall the first execution that you witnessed? I do. It was, I did witness one in 98, right? When I had gotten to the newspaper, um, the woman covering the executions had a conflict and couldn't go. And so I covered just that one in 98 and then didn't start doing it again until 2000. Um, it was a man named Javier Cruz and it was a case out of San Antonio. And, um, I remember him. I remember what he looked like. I remember the crime. He had killed two elderly men um, with a hammer. He basically bludgeoned them to death with a hammer. Um, I don't remember a ton else about the crime. It was more just the the going there and just how unfamiliar all the, the setting was. And uh, then witnessing the execution, going back and having to file my story. Do you recall like any emotions you might have felt during or after? Like, Were you nervous? I was not because I think the woman who covered them was pretty good about telling me what to expect, but to my, I guess my career trajectory was a little bit different in that I was really young. I was, I was 22 when I saw that first execution, but, um, my dad is a newspaper guy. That's how it ultimately I got into journalism. I was at first never going to do it because your parents want you to do something and I'm going to be rebellious. No, I'm going to go to business school. And instead I had like a 0.7 at the mid semester as a, as a business major and realized, <laughs> yeah, this is my thing. So I became a journalist. But my point is, is that um, I had worked at my dad's newspaper starting when I was 16. And, and so I had, had been the photographer at that time. So by that time, by 22, I had covered fatalities and I had covered, you know, fires and things things like like that, that that were really ugly to see. So I think that knowing that I was going to see something that was described to me as being very clinical, I was okay. Um, When I got back and my dad was asking me how it was, I think I felt a little bit concerned in the way that I thought, I feel like I should feel something more and I didn't. And I was worried, is that a commentary on me or who I am. And then I dismissed it and thought, no, I'm a journalist. I'm supposed to be unbiased. I'm supposed to just go in and and report something. Looking back on it now, it's like you are supposed to be unbiased and everything. It is a bizarre assignment. You know, you're going and actually watching someone die is a very, very bizarre. Especially at that age. But I mean, I guess you have that professional level of detachment sort of that you kind of develop over time. That and I think too, it's like, especially you're young and you're a woman, you feel this need to constantly be proving yourself anyway. So I think even if I had gone in and had a really hard time, there's no way I would have said something to anybody. You know, that was always my issue. I'm assuming of like the women on death row, did they like generate more publicity? Did they get it easier than the male inmates in a way? You they definitely had it easier. Yeah, their yeah. time on death row was easier because the men, there were so many of them, and they were in this unit in Livingston, Texas, where they were locked down in their cells 23 hours a day. And the whole reason for that was that there had been a death row escape, and they reasoned that, it, or they it, through their investigation found out the reason that it had been planned was because they had so much freedom, the men on death row. They used to have a work program, and they used to go to church together and things like that. That's how they were able to plan this, this escape. And so um, 
they locked him down after that. The women never went through that. So when I would go to female death row and there, you only had 10 women at the time on death row, they almost lived in like a little dorm. It was like a little pod and they were able to come into a common room and they ate together and they had a work program where they made um, dolls. They made these dolls and, and you could buy them. Yeah. I thought they were, they were very, to me, a little creepy, the dolls, they were kind of like a cabbage patch kid, but yeah, not. And um, anyway, that's what they would do. So I'm assuming most of the executions you witnessed were male, but how many females did you ever see being executed? I witnessed two, two women. They're just, they're, again, it was such a small population yeah. that it was rare that one came up. Um, I did not see Carla Faye Tucker, which was the huge female execution. I moved to Huntsville two months after that. So I saw a woman named Betty Lou Beats, who they referred to as the Black Widow because she murdered husbands and buried them in the backyard. Um, I saw her and um, the thing about her execution, that was the first one where I'd seen in the victim's room, they, it was two sons. You know, they, she had murdered each of their fathers and um, they high-fived each other. That was the first time I'd ever seen any of that. Again, this was in 2000. So this is my first year of witnessing executions. Um, Cause you usually didn't see a lot going on in the victim's room. Um, not a lot of outward displays of emotion in any way. And they had high-fived because she killed her dad, you know? Um, and then the other was a woman named Frances Newton who had killed her children and her husband. And, um, I, I the weird thing about, it, I liked Frances. Um, she was always very polite and stuff, but it used to unsettle me because I was pregnant at the time that I was going, that her execution was scheduled. So I was going to see her and she would ask about my pregnancy a lot, you know, while I'd be standing there with my giant stomach and it just made me uncomfortable because she'd killed her kids, you know, yeah, I didn't, creepy. Yeah, yeah, I didn't love it. I didn't love yeah. it. So, so you just mentioned, so the, the victim's families are separate from the killer's families. Like are there, is there two separate rooms? Yes, there are two separate rooms, so they never see each other, and it's completely orchestrated that way because obviously emotions are, are high, there could be confrontations, so the rooms are side by side, and they're separated by a wall, so the victim's family, um, when I would witness, the victim's family was standing nearest to the inmate's head. And then the inmate's family was standing closer to their feet, but it was actually easier for the inmate who's being executed to see their own family because they could just look straight down. Whereas to see the victims, they had to turn their head all the way to the side to see them. So it was, it was designed that way so that they could see both rooms. If they so wanted. I remember you saying in the book that the wall is paper thin. Yeah, that wall's They thin. could hear each other. Like, why? I, yeah, and I hated that. It always <laughs> bothered me because, you know, the victim's family would be in there. And a lot of times, like I said, you didn't see a lot of emotion in there because they've gone through all of this. You know, in a lot of cases, it's been years, a decade, some longer. And this is a final chapter for them. But then on the other side of the wall, you have a family who's watching their loved one die. And so they have a lot of emotion going on in that room. And so I don't love that that as the victim's family, you have to hear the anguished cries of this woman over here who's watching her son die. And, and vice versa. you know, I don't like that they can hear each other and I don't know why they don't design that room better. Did you ever see any kind of like fracas or um, like, did anyone ever yell something at each other or do they just avoid each other completely? They don't ever see each other. There's they, I, in all the, the executions I witnessed, there was never one instance where the two families met because they staged them in different areas before the execution. And then the way that we'd bring them in and out it's it's choreographed so that they never cross paths. 
So no, I never saw that. So what happens afterwards? Are they hanging out outside? Are there like donuts, coffee? Like what? <laughs> yes, they're awake. Yeah, no. Well, is you know, so the there's a contract with the local funeral home. And so the funeral home immediately takes the body back to the funeral home. And so the family can go there, the inmate's family. Um, and then the victim's family usually stay for a little bit and they do a debriefing with the victim services department. And um, a lot of times they'll do a press conference afterwards. So they still never see each other. The room or the buildings are locked down. So, so I've read that most of the executions are by lethal injection, but do they, I mean, do they still do any other methods like hanging? I know they used to, old Sparky, didn't they have an electric chair in in Texas? They did have old Sparky, but that's been, yeah, it hasn't, in Texas, it's been lethal injection since 82, which is when the first one took place. Um, Texas does not, some states do. Uh, It's my understanding, if unless it's changed in Utah, you can still change or choose one of the five methods. So firing squad, hanging, lethal injection, electrocution. Yeah, you can still choose which one you want. What do you think, in your personal opinion, is the most uh, humane? I'd have to go with lethal injection. It, it was just so fast. You know, every, and, and again, I never saw anything but lethal injection. But from what I've heard about the gas chamber, it's it's meh, that's suffocating and all of that, which uh, just no. Um, firing squad seems pretty twisted. <laughs> I don't know exactly how that romanticism works. Romanticism with that, though. I don't, I don't know why. Maybe. maybe. <laughs> I well, think it's, you know, what most men are like, squad. no, I'm going to go out in a blaze of glory. Let's do <laughs> yeah. firing squad. As a woman, I'm like, no, I'm not, I'm not doing that. Um, and yeah, so I, I would go with lethal injection because especially again, the way I saw them all with the three drugs, they administered in such, or were administered in such rapid succession that they were done over the course of, of less than two minutes. And then that quick? the person was gone. Yeah. The one drug is not as fast. It, it doesn't seem, and I never saw them that way, but when I see the articles and I read the amount of time between when they started and when it ended, it's almost double what we were in. And, and the inmates just pass out and fall into like a never waking slumber, right? It's just that quick. Yeah. Each of the three, the three chemicals was a lethal dose. So if you had just administered one of them, it would have killed them. It's just, it would have taken longer. So the first drug is a lethal sedative. So it knocks them out. The second was a um, muscle relaxer. Then that's that it collapses the lungs and the diaphragm. So when you hear the articles or you read in articles where they're talking about a coughing or snoring or any of that, it's because the second drug is hit. And then the third drug stops the heart. So when you deliver them that quickly, it's it's a very, very fast death. So did you ever witness a botched execution? No, like not in Texas. Work? No, I've certainly I've read about them in other states. I've read about the the gentleman. I think it was at Arizona or Oklahoma. Which the, one was it? Where Clayton he? Day, what's he called? Carrot Dayton. Yeah, I'm not. But it was where he basically died of a heart attack because. Yeah, that's it, him. Yeah. Yeah, 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 nothing like that. The only one, and I didn't witness it, Larry Fitzgerald, who um, was my mentor and spoke former spokesperson at the prison system, had to witness one where the man had um, tried to kill himself before the execution. And he um, was taken to the hospital and they, they saved him. They had to pump his stomach and everything. And they gave him something with charcoal, um, which I guess absorbs the medication that he had taken. And then he was executed a few days later and the chemicals reacted poorly with what was in his stomach. And so he was like vomiting and it was just a really nasty scene. But again, I wasn't there. So they revived him to execute him. 
a lot of people, yes, they're always surprised at that, but it's because it's, it's as long as the inmate is in our custody, it's our responsibility to keep them alive and keep them safe. And then when we get that warrant that says they have to be executed is then the state's responsibility to execute them on that day. A lot of people have asked that, well, why wouldn't you have just let him die? But because the state the has an obligation, they can't. So you mentioned Larry, and I have, Larry is such a big character in the book. Like, yes. I would have loved to have met Larry. Was there any, like, anecdotes or stories that were just, like, too spicy, as the kids say? To <laughs> too spicy to put in the book? Yeah. yeah. You know no. what? Since I wasn't at the prison system, I didn't care. You know, it's like, yeah. let's just put him in. No, I mean, as you, you saw in the book, I mean, he was extremely... Um, mischievous mischievous however you pronounce it but he was he was very naughty in the little things that he would do um you know the the thing I wrote about with him taking me to I mean I had just gotten there just started working there and he brought me to one of the prisons where they were doing classifications and I walk in and there's I don't know dozens and dozens of naked men all around me taking showers it was so mortifying and yet I thought <laughs> well I've just got to accept this because if I act like I am shocked shy or anything else he will never let me live it down so he, he did things like that to me regularly well, trying to toughen me up, sorry. I'm sure. He developed <laughs> yeah. personal relationships, though, with a lot of the inmates. Did you do the same, I guess, over time? Or were you more detached, I guess, from them? I was a little bit more detached, but part of that is because of the nature of how death row was when he started versus when I, he started when they were much more open, um, at, at the Ellis unit, which is near Huntsville. And that again is where they were able to move around pretty freely, the death row inmates. And, um, he could actually go to their cells and talk to them and they allowed it. And the visits were totally different. Visitation booths were very different. There was a mesh screen and you could hear the inmate way better. When I started, they had already been moved to the Polensky unit in Livingston and it was a totally different setup. So I only went back to their cell area I mean, a handful of times in the time I was there because the security was way higher. And so it was much more difficult to go back there. Um, and it had gotten to be a lot less safe by that time too, mm. because by then I think a lot of the inmates were pretty pissed off about being locked up for 23 hours a day. So it wasn't, it just wasn't the same atmosphere. So, um, the way I got to know him was, was going week after week and setting up their media visits because, what would end up happening is we're there for a two hour window, but I would get there about an hour early. I would go in and make sure everything was set up and there'd be the inmates in their booths and, you know, they'd want to chat. They don't really have a lot of visitors. They don't get the opportunity to chat. And so that's how I would get to know them. Do the families typically maintain a relationship? I've often wondered about that. Like if my father, I don't know, murdered a bunch of children, like if I would even want to maintain any kind of semblance of a relationship. Yeah. You know, it depends on the crime, I think, you know, yeah. if, if yes, okay, maybe if your dad killed a whole bunch of children, probably not. But <laughs> if you know, maybe if your dad kills somebody in a drug deal or something like there was one yeah, guy who was like on that. death row, he killed someone in a drug deal, didn't realize that the person he killed was an undercover cop automatic, you know, he, he got the death penalty. So in a case like that, you know, yeah, you probably still are, are in touch or the crime happened so long ago, there's a lot of children who their parent committed the crime when they were babies. And so they come later on when they're older, um, you know, because they never really knew the parents, stuff like that. But no, they definitely do. And then those that don't have family that keep in touch with them, because there was there was one man I knew, the one that I write about in the book who had sent me the letter that started, if you're reading this, then they've killed me. 
Um, he had killed his entire family. There really wasn't anybody to come visit him. Yeah, no but come. yeah, nobody was coming for that. Um, but they, a lot of them have pen pals and a lot of them have pen pals from overseas. So they will have, and a lot of them strike up relationships with people from overseas. So they will come and stay and they come at a, spe a specific time of the month so that they can get a visit, let's say for July. And then a week or two later, they get their August visit. And so they make the most of the trip. And so a lot of them, even if they don't have family, they have pen pals that come and visit them and write to them and send them money and such. Well, some of them yeah, even I get to married, ask you right? about those Sunderland and Yeah. Pipes. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Like, did they cause more problems than usually, like, blood relations? Because they're, they're kind of wackadoo in a way themselves, aren't they? It's a very strange the pen pals and such mean yes yeah who end up marrying them and then they go there for their execution well, are they, they invited to the execution yeah if the inmate can choose who comes to witness oh. on their behalf um and yes usually if there were issues it did seem to involve one of the pen pals or one of their wives that they had married since getting on death row we had one woman who was from germany who was refusing to put her shoes on and I think she thought if she wouldn't put her shoes on that we would stop the execution. And right. that's not how it works. I mean, they basically told her, well, you can put your shoes on and go in or you can stay out here without your shoes. But this is happening either way. And so she got her shit together and went in with her shoes. Um, there were uh, there was one instance where the family got into a big fight with the wife or the girlfriend who was from overseas over what was going to happen with the remains because Ooh. the the uh, pen pal wanted to bring these ashes back to Europe and the family was basically saying uh no you will not we're going to bury him here and so that was a big fight the the pen pals don't get conjugal visits on death row do they no no no, okay, so no. some states allow conjugal visits texas is not one wow yeah. Wow, yeah. yeah. And even if Texas was one, they would not do it for death row. Yeah. So, no, that's the thing. When you go on death row, you don't have any human contact anymore. So even when you have those final visits with your family the day of the execution, there's okay. no touching or hugging or anything like that. And they have to do it that way because if you have someone who's about to die, you don't have necessarily a lot of incentive not to try anything you can to not have that execution go forth, including taking someone hostage. So they can't allow you to yeah, at that hug point, a child or something like end. that. So would, so would you as a reporter interview them like moments before the execution or like an hour before the execution? As a reporter, no. As a reporter, I would see them usually a week or two before the execution oh, okay. because yeah. the death row days were every Wednesday. You'd go, and then if the execution was on a Wednesday, you could not see that person on that day because by the time you get to death row to do media visits, they're already on their way to Huntsville for the execution. So it just it doesn't work out that way. It'd be about a week. As the spokesperson, I would have to see them a few hours before the execution, which I think was probably one of the most difficult parts of being spokesperson working executions because there's nothing good you can say to someone who's about yeah. to die i mean yeah. <laughs> yeah. i don't know what were those conversations like like what would you say like so how you doing yeah hey what's <laughs> up no i mean there's there was that was the whole thing it was awkward it was always awkward and my whole point in going when they would get into the um holding cell near the chamber they'd come from polanski over to the walls unit, which is where the executions take place. So it's about a 45, 50 minute drive. They get there. Um, 
they get new clothes, their fingerprints, all the good stuff, they're processed, and then they're put in this holding cell. So it would be me, the warden, the chaplain who was assigned to that inmate who's going to spend the afternoon with them, and then some officers that were around. We would go to talk to him, and my whole role was really to just see what the demeanor was like because the reporters would ask me, um, you know, was he was he chatty? Was he talkative? Was he nervous? Was he, you know, and so it was really too up to my my opinion of what the person was, which was also a little bit strange, but, you know, some made it easy and they would talk. Um, others would, were very nervous. There were some that were angry. There were some that were excited. Um, you know, it was just, it really kind of ran the gamut. The excited was much less. There weren't that many that were looking forward <laughs> to it, but it. we had a couple that were ready to get it over with. So Which the, is also a bizarre conversation. Well, I imagine they've been on death row for a long time, so like, let's just let's just get it done, you know. At this point, so the yeah, chaplain, there were some that were volunteers that, and when they're a volunteer, it's it's considered that because they waive all their appeals and ask for a date. Wow, so they're just ready to yeah. go. Yeah, their time on death row is three or four years. So you, wow. I mean, you read it. I read in the book that you were saying that the chaplain does the spends spends like you know the day with them. It gives them words of advice on how to die well. What does that mean exactly? Like, what, what do they say? My friend Jim Brazel was the minister for all of the executions for some time. And he used to tell them that when the drugs were hitting, that they were going to feel like they were drowning. And he used to tell them to just go with it. He said, if you fight the wave, it's going to be worse. So when you feel it, just go with that wave. And, and that's what he would tell them. And um, you could tell sometimes when people were fighting it as far that's when you would hear gasps and such more and no matter what it's not a pleasant sound you know no matter no matter the crime no matter the person yeah. it's still not a pleasant sound you know for is anybody the, involved is the chaplain in the execution chamber with them at that time yes the texas has changed some of their rules um, since i left and based on different lawsuits and such but the time that i was witnessing all of those executions the the room was always um the inmate being executed the warden standing at his head or her head and then the chaplain would be near their feet i wanted to ask you what's happened to jim's bible that's was signed by all these inmates that he saw die basically you know like, i don't you know, know. i'm sure that? he has it and there's no way he doesn't have it but i haven't asked him about that in a while so, <laughs> so there's no doubt he has it what about their last words i've often wondered about this like do they is do they get unlimited time for how long they can speak or how, how does that work and were you ever shocked by any last words like if they could like filibuster yeah. no that was always told <laughs> you will not filibuster it will not work we will eventually start it um in the longest i ever saw it was an execution of a man named gary graham and it was a huge um controversial case it was it, there was there was a lot of of media attention on it it was probably of the executions i witnessed the longest most taxing day for any execution because there were so many protesters. It was a racially charged as far as the protesters go. Um, the KKK showed up Oof. as like oh, pro-death yeah. penalty protesters. The Black Panthers, new Black Panthers showed up um, opposing the, the execution. It was a really tense scene all day long. And then to boot, it was June in Texas. So it was 3000 degrees. Yeah. So everybody was pissed <laughs> off anyway. Um, it was just, it was an awful, awful day, but he spoke 
for about 20 to 25 minutes. It was a long speech. And the only reason I have always believed they let it go that long was because the witnesses for Gary Graham were all, it was Jesse Jackson. It was oh, Al wow. Sharpton, yeah. Bianca Jagger. They had all come. And I think honestly that, that the warden was afraid of cutting him off with yeah. high profile witnesses like that, because normally they're allowed two minutes to speak. Oh, it took like um, two minutes. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. It was way past two minutes. I mean, for injecting. as a reporter, I was a reporter at the time. It's like my notebook only has so much paper in it. And I mean, we were <laughs> frantically scribbling, trying to get all this stuff. I mean, he was just talking at different points, just in circles and such trying to, I think, prolong it, which was never going to happen. Well, but they don't record. It, like, it are you on. allowed to record? No, no, so no, no which I, I sort of get why and I don't. I, I know that there's a concern about people open records doing it. I don't necessarily see what the issue with that is because you report on the last statement anyway. I don't yeah. know if there's just a, a fear that it would look too voyeuristic to have that released, an actual audio recording of someone's last words before execution. I don't know, but. They don't. And, and I wish they did, because there have been times that we argued about the accuracy of the last statement that was transcribed and we were given based on what we actually heard in the chamber. Yeah, that's I mean, you just, have to do shorthand to get that. Yeah. Well, or one one execution, he's t spoken a different language. No one knew. And oh. how do you what do you do with that? You know, there's no recording of it. So you can't play it back. You can't couldn't translate it wasn't i know spanish it wasn't spanish and I don't remember what the language was but nobody knew what the hell he said <laughs> yeah it's gonna be different yeah. so i'm assuming most of them do they usually ask for forgiveness at that time or apologize to the family or or are there some, other spiteful um, ones that like some, curse everyone out yeah no and it's totally different some will apologize to the victim's family you know i'm so sorry for what i've taken from you others will profess their innocence some will um apologize to their own families and ignore the victim's families and they'll apologize. You know, I'm so sorry I put you through this. And then you have others that don't do any of that, that we had one that, um, he was taking submissions for a joke to tell from the execution gurney. So he, he wanted it out there when he did these interviews. Yeah. He was asking for people to send in jokes. So everybody would be paying, like tuning in to see, well, which joke did he pick? And then when he got there, he was like, well, the joke's actually on you. And he said a whole bunch of stuff Aww. about the death penalty. I know Aww. we were all like, what's the joke? Yeah. There was no joke. So that's what he said. The joke was, um, we had a guy that, that, you know, made a joke about the Dallas Cowboys. Um, you know, it just, it was, it was completely random. And then we had, we've had some that did songs. There was, I didn't witness a man who sang silent night, wow, but um, yeah. And it was, cause it wasn't at Christmas. Their, their executions don't go into late December. <laughs> they, the they really don't. So I, I don't know if that was just a comforting song or what but um we had another it was the one of the ones that i said was excited for the execution he had been a biker you know so he's used to being a nomad and being free and being yeah. out and at his he was saying let's rock and roll and he started quoting um a, a famous texas song called the road goes on forever and the party never ends yeah oh that's kind of a cool way to go out so did you ever yeah. see anyone like get really upset and curse other people or curse the, the victims or anything there were two executions that were pretty nasty as far as the last statements go. Um, one was a case that has gotten tons of media attention, Cameron Willingham. A lot of people hold that case up and say, you know, that this could have been an innocent man. 
um, based on some of the science, but there was, it's my understanding there was other evidence that was used to convict him. I don't know. I, I didn't know him particularly well. I do know the victim's mother because he was basically convicted of setting a fire that killed his children. Oh. Um, he and his wife were separating and, you know, yeah, he wanted to, to harm her. He wanted to hurt her. And there was no greater thing that you can, I, I think pain you can inflict on someone than doing something to the children, even if they're yours. Yeah. Um, so when he saw her there to witness and she was on the victim's side, he just unleashed this tirade. It was just profane. It was hateful and called her every name you can imagine um, while she was standing there. Ooh. So that was one. And th there was That's another, nice. and it was actually the night of the double execution. There were, again, there were two executions carried out in the same night oh. and um, it was nuts. It, it just happened that way because you have two different judges and two different parts of the state who happen to select this day. And so the state has to do it. And the first execution was a man who was extremely angry and said a lot of ugly things to the victim's family said, you know, you can kiss my ass. And basically oh. I hope you die in a car crash on your way home. And then a few minutes later, the second man, it could not have been a more, I think, sincere apology to the victim's family. So to see him back to back like that, it'd be such there, yeah. a contrast was really, it's just always really stuck with me. Wow. So you were talking about high profile cases and probably two of the most famous cases, uh, well, people, not cases, they were people, mm -hmm. was Tommy Linsells and um, Angel uh, Resendez. You saw both of them. I did. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, and they were both serial killers. And so yeah. that's how um, they had gotten to be so famous because not only had they kind of struck terror in Texas and, and for a while, everybody knew like the rail car killer on hell, Resendez Ramirez. Um, that's all he was known as is the rail car killer, you know? And, and the thing about he and cells was that they were a little bit different than your normal serial killer in that they didn't have the same MO and that made them harder to catch because they didn't have a similar victim every time. Um, it, with Resendez, it was finally the reason he was called the rail car killer. They finally figured out that it was because he was going uh, along train tracks and killing people in the nearby vicinity. But, um, it's funny, Resendez and I had a really good relationship, which sounds really twisted when you're talking about a serial <laughs> killer. killer. <laughs> um, he was always extremely polite to me, and he was very, very smart and somewhat entertaining to talk to. Cells and I did not get along at all. Um, he was extremely, he was really rude. And he comes across as a wanker. Oh, he was such about Tommy Limsells. He's just he was. He was such an ass. Um, I mean, his crimes were horrific. So were Resendez, but you know, Cells killed children. Um, I lived in this small town in Illinois where he had killed an entire family and he had beat the woman until she went into labor. She was pregnant and then killed the baby. I mean, this is a horrible, horrible, horrible human being. And we just, we did not get along. Um, at all, how often really. did you have to deal with and it's, I, there were truly only two death row inmates i didn't get along with it was him and one other inmate who i don't think has been executed he wasn't executed while i was there and he got mad at me because i wouldn't allow him to keep a ballpoint pen that belonged to the correctional officer that's a weapon, a weapon basically so, i mean yeah. it was a weapon and yeah I mean, we can't just yeah we can't just let you keep it you know there's there's no reason you need to keep it but it became a thing well, I know uh, Kate wanted to, was eager to ask this question, but I'm, I'm also curious about it too. What about their food, like their last meals? Like, did you as a spokesperson have to arrange that or make sure it happened? 
Is that a thing? I did not arrange it or anything like that. They got to choose what they wanted about two weeks before the execution. So the rule in Texas is it has to be an item where the ingredients already exist at the prison unit. So like some states and like federal have different rules. It's my understanding. I think federal gives you a budget. It's, I don't know, $25, $30. So for instance, um, the Oklahoma, I can't talk. The Oklahoma city bomber, um, from what I had read, I think chose a Big Mac, you know, he could get food from outside. Texas doesn't allow that. You have to have food items that are stuff that we would have in the kitchen. So if you request a lobster, you will not get a lobster. You're going to get maybe one of those like frozen fish patties because they do have those at the prison. Um, so because of that, the most requested meal was the cheeseburger. Um, lots of people requested cheeseburgers, a lot of breakfast foods. The best thing and what I personally would pick just because I'm obsessed with mac and cheese is mac and cheese. I had, there was one inmate who was responsible for cooking all the last meals and I had his mac and cheese one time and it's probably some of the best mac and cheese I've ever had. Nice. <laughs> it was really good. Wow. Yeah. I yeah. think I would have mac and cheese or fries, just lots of fries. I would have yeah, to have cheese like fries. fries. I, 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 oh, there's yeah. a common cheese theme involved with anything I'm going to pick. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just a lot of cheese. Well, is it a- I say that. I know I would be too nervous to eat. When I get nervous, I do not eat. And that always did surprise me when you go back there and they had eaten everything. Because I would think, how do you stomach that? I, I There's no way I could. Well, I guess that kind of leads to my next question. And I apologize if it's gross. But have you ever seen anyone vomit or like shit themselves on the gurney? Because if they're eating yeah. all that much food and they're nervous, like did anything like that ever happen? No, no. It's my understanding. The only thing some, that even close was, was what I described earlier with the guy that, that had the purple, um, that it was, it was grape juice that had mixed with this charcoal. And I got oh, the impression again, I wasn't there that it was coming out of his nose and mouth and such, which Oops. sounded pretty horrific and awful. Would they stop the proceedings or they're like, Hey, he's going to die anyway. Let's just move forward. At that it. point they can't, you know, it's, yeah. I, I always like to, you know, on, on movies where they show like there's a red phone and if that phone rings and they're going to stop the execution, <laughs> that won't happen. There, there is actually a red phone or there is a phone, but that phone is to only say the execution can proceed. Once that inmate is on the gurney, there's nothing that's going to stop it because um, first of all, it would be extremely cruel and unusual to put someone on a gurney and have them wait for hours yeah in the last moment yeah put the needles in that would never happen so that doesn't happen if they get to that gurney it's because all appeals have been exhausted and that execution's happening so if if they did vomit or something there's not really anything they can do yeah but i never saw it so i know you probably get asked this all the time about your stance on death penalty but do you feel personally the same way you did on about capital punishment when you started as you do now being out of the job i mean you're beyond that you don't work for the tdjc anymore right no no i left in 2012 no i i don't think i feel exactly the same i think when i was younger you know again i started at 22 really in earnest or well i guess it was a little in 2000 was when i started really covering it so i was 24 um i think i was very much in favor of the death penalty it to me it made sense if you kill someone you pay with your life i think as i got older and you learn more about life you go through more life experiences you have friends that go through life experiences it's not that i'm opposed to it i'm not that either i really do feel like it's a case-by-case basis there were executions i saw i wouldn't have given the person the death penalty had i been on the jury um 
there were some executions I had no issue with whatsoever. Like the real car mm -hmm. killer. I liked him, but I liked visiting with him. Had no, no issue watching that execution for everything he had done. Um, I had a hard time with some of them. You know, there were, there were some, it's not even whether they deserved it, you know, air quotes or not based on the crime, you get to know the person and you wonder, would they do something like this again? I don't think they would. I think that if they were given another chance in 30 years that they would live a productive life. But then I used to feel really guilty for feeling that way because I would think, you know, it's easy for me to say, because I only am seeing this person that's been on death row for 10 years. They didn't take something from me. They didn't kill yeah. someone that I loved or, you know, murder my child or shoot my father in a carjacking and things like that. So it, it, it was complicated. And, and I can say, honestly, I don't have a hard stance on it one way or the other. I look at individual cases and then assess whether or not I personally, Michelle thinks that it's an appropriate punishment, but in the end, it's, it's not my call. It's, it's, I don't think that it's wrong for a crime victim to feel they need that retribution, you know, my, and I write about it in the book, you know, my, my stepdaughter, um, I'm not married now, but I was married in 2016. My stepdaughter was shot and killed in a, a robbery in California and she was 17 years old. That's so terrible. would I have had an issue with him getting the death penalty? No, they caught him and stuff. He did not. It was California and the circumstances of the crime were such that they didn't go for the death penalty, but it completely undid my husband at the time, her dad, you know, to the point that he started a drug habit, he did heroin and he's dead now, oh, you know, wow. died of a drug yeah. overdose, you know? So my, my point yeah. is, is that it's, it's just not that simple. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's not so life is ever simple, is it? Yeah. No, and that's exactly it. You know, I think when you're young, it's easy to see things very black and white. And the older you get, um, the more you realize it's not. You know, I, I think, too, when I started out, again, yes, I'm pretty pro-death penalty, and I feel all this empathy for the victim's family. But then once I had a child, once I was a mom, and I would see what these women are going through watching their child die in front of them, that really tore me up. You know, again, they didn't ask for this. It wasn't their fault that no, it's gotta this, be this happened. Something. You know, I can't even imagine. I think the appetite for capital punishment has definitely dropped slightly among the general population of uh, the United States. But do you think a state like Texas will ever do away with it? I can't imagine. I mean, they've led, don't they lead executions every, pretty much every year in the state of Texas? Texas usually does. Oklahoma did one year. Um, again, I, I, I think there's probably some evidence that that's true based again on the fact that the death row population has dropped so dramatically yeah. now that life without parole is an option. I think prior to that, people were uncomfortable thinking, okay, this is a pretty nasty crime, but if I give him a life sentence, he could be out in 40 years. And I don't love that either. So they would end up assessing death. Now that they have life without parole, they're using it way more. There are less people that are coming on to death row than ever before. I think in order for it to go away in Texas, they would have to have irrefutable evidence that someone innocent was executed, which is, is sad anyway, because then you've lost an innocent life. But my personal opinion is that's probably what it would take for Texas to ever not execute. Wow. Yeah. I wonder, I do, I do wonder, especially, I mean, you know, it's still, there's still like 55 countries, I think that still do capital punishment throughout the world. So, um, yeah, 
Uh, it, it's, yeah, the it's, number of states. Not really in Europe, though. No, definitely no. not in Europe, but it's strange that the U.S. would still be a part of that. No, it's funny, though. You know, when I when I released the book, I participated in a radio show um, in Manchester, and they had callers that were calling in. The number of people in London or in Manchester, you know, in the in the area who were calling in supporting the death penalty, which that shocked me because I thought I am about to just get hammered and it's going to be a whole bunch of people that are calling in saying they were all against the death penalty. And it wasn't that way at all. They were I, calling I and saying France they too. wish they did have it. They were mostly saying, especially for child killers. That's you see that all yeah. the time. Whenever a child dies, they always say like, yeah, I've, I've, I've noticed that it seems like there's a call for it for that and not for others, but it still surprised me because I, I just didn't think that I would have that, that response. So your book, uh, uh, Death Row, The Final Minutes, came out in uh, 2018. Has the reaction been generally favorable or have you got any um, upset like victims, family responses? No, I don't know that I don't know that they would have read it or anything. And and I don't think that I say anything really negative. You know, I I think anybody who reads it would see it is not a pro-death penalty book. It is not an anti-death penalty book. It is truly me going over the stuff that I struggled with, the things that I saw, the experiences I had, um, because it was a struggle. It was constantly wondering, am I doing the right thing? I feel guilty for rooting for this inmate. I feel guilty for feeling too much empathy for this victim. It was just constant pulling at you and you do it for 12 years and almost 300 executions and it's a lot. And so really that's all it was. It, it, it's not to make anybody feel any particular way about the death penalty. The only thing I would like if anybody took away from it is to realize that both sides have a valid argument. You know, I think so many people are so pro death penalty and it's because they've never had a loved one who's in prison or been faced with that. And then you have people that are so anti-death penalty because they've never had a loved one killed. Um, you know, I think that you have a lot of people with really strong opinions on both sides, neither of which try to see where the other is coming from whatsoever. Well, well I loved your book. It's probably one of the best books I've read. Like, thank you so much. Thank fascinating, you. Fascinating story. Modern true crime book. It was great. Definitely give insight to something that a lot of people never really realize or or have any kind of personal connection to. So very interesting. Yeah. People, get yourself a copy Thank of Michelle's book, Death Row, The Final Minutes on Amazon. Michelle, it's been great chatting with you. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks. Yes, and, uh, thank happy you both holidays. so much for having me. Yeah. Thank you. All right, thanks yeah. a lot. It's interesting what she said about... Uh, uh, the the people in Manchester saying like yeah let's bring the death penalty back do you think uh, opinions change is, is divided in England? No, I definitely think they're the people who you find them on Facebook where they're saying hang the nonce, hang the nonce. It's those types oh, it's of like people child who murders. murderers. Yeah, and it's maybe like people of my like you know my mum's generation. She remembers hanging. It's like not too long ago in British history that hanging was actually like stopped that we stopped doing capital punishment so it's usually that generation who are like bring hanging back well i think it was uh, the death penalty for murder was banned in england scotland and wales in 1965 so it's been a it's yes. been a while um northern ireland took a little long longer took a little bit longer northern ireland was 1973 um but yeah i mean it's you know as of 2018 capital punishment has been abolished in pretty much all european countries except for belarus and Russia. 
However, Russia has had a moratorium on uh, capital punishment since 1999. So really, it's just yeah. Belarus is the only European country where the death penalty is still used in practice. Yeah, but I couldn't even tell you when the last time someone was actually executed in Belarus. Oh, no, the 2017. They executed. Was it uh, yeah, I was reading yeah. about that. But I mean, for the most part, that's pretty much all of Europe has abolished the uh, the death penalty. Um, actually, a total of 108 countries have a completely abolished the death penalty. 28 countries have effectively abolished the death penalty by not executing anyone over the past 10 years, and there's 55 countries that still retain the death penalty for ordinary crimes. The U.S. being one Saudi of Saudi Arabia. <laughs> But yeah, you know, four countries, Iran, Egypt, Iraq, and Saudi Arabia account for 88% of all known executions in uh, 2020. But they're leaving out one major um, country or proponent of the death penalty, China. They're believed to be the world's most prolific executioner. However, death, uh, death sentences and executions are state secrets. So it's very difficult to verify the exact number of people who are executed every year in China. But uh, there's been different organizations, like human rights-based organizations, that have tried to track the executions in China. So um, this one company called the Dewey Hao Foundation estimated that 2,000 people were killed in 2016 alone in China. Just for a range of crimes. Just for a range of crimes. Mostly political dissidents, but yeah, just for a range of uh, crimes, which is a high number. 2,000 people. It definitely dwarfs everybody else, except that's uh, a substantial drop from 2002 with a group estimated that 12,000 people were killed that year. So they're, they're getting better. You know, they're changing their numbers, you know. Possibly, or maybe numbers are going down. protests in Hong Kong that, <laughs> that year. And uh, 17 people in uh, 2020 in the U.S. were executed. That's down from 22 in 2019. So in 2020, we had 17 down from five, um, down five from 22 in 2019. However, it's the 13th consecutive year that uh, the USA was the only country in the Americas to uh, implement the death penalty and still practice using the death penalty. Lethal injection is the most widely used method of execution in the United States, but some states do allow other methods, including electrocution. They still use an electric chair in Tennessee, a gas chamber, they're still hanging, and firing squads in the U.S. Um, in uh, Saudi Arabia, the most popular and predominant form of execution, beheading with a sword. Is it? I was totally going to say hanging from a crane. I didn't Beheading with a sword. See, I, I've said it loads now, but if I could choose my execution, I want the guillotine. Bring back the guillotine. You would do a sword? It's like very no, the, the guillotine. There's something very sexy about a guillotine. Just something sexual about it. Beheading isn't. Beheading is a bit more macabre. And like, if the axeman, if the swordsman, is you know a little bit drunk that day, he can like you know I've Knock watched all the way beheading videos. They're not pleasant. But a guillotine would be like, and you're you're dead. You're done. Would you want your head covered so you couldn't see the guillotine as you're being marched towards it? No, I want to see the guillotine because I want to have like one single tear like just roll down my face as I'm being led up the stairs in my really grand dress. I will wear like such a big dress and then they'll make me, you know, kneel and put my head on it and then they'll say something about how I've wronged society. And, and they then just chop I'll, your head I'll off. I'll protest my innocence. And as I'm saying, I'm, I'm innocent. I'm an innocent woman. The guillotine will fall. You know, as I said before, I've always admired the romanticism of the firing squad. 
I just wouldn't mind just having that one final cigarette, and then one of these five people shoots me through the heart. All right, Gary Gilmore. Yeah, I was like that. I thought that was cool. <laughs> anyway, the number of countries which have formally abolished the death penalty has been increasing. So from 48 in 1991 to 106 in 2017. Oh, so that's a, that is a lot. It's big, the big consensus time. is definitely shifting. Attitudes towards uh, capital punishment are shifting. So be interesting to see. But people definitely check out uh, Michelle's book, um, Death Row, The Final Minutes. Uh, fascinating read. Uh, Great this, lady loves her. This is episode 820 here at Sick and Wrong. Got some phone calls coming up next, 323-522-4032. Uh, but first... Here's a word from our sponsor. Ah, the holidays. It's snowing outside, the fire is crackling, and there's a big jar of unused lube on your nightstand. And that can only mean one thing. It's December. Yes, that time of year that we celebrate Christ's alleged birth with the purchase of a shiny brand new dildo at AdamEve.com. And if you use coupon code DIDDLE on your order, you'll get 50% off your first purchase, three free adult DVDs, and a free gift. Show your loved ones you still care and cram a brand new dildo down their holiday road. Support Sick and Wrong by supporting our sponsor, AdamandEve.com, and making a purchase using coupon code DIDDLE. That's D-I-D-D-L-E, like priests do to altar boys. Hallelujah. So we got a few phone calls to get to. Uh, 323-522-4032 is that number. Um, you know, we're currently accepting holiday-themed phone calls. So you can... Yeah, well, we got to, you know, stockpile a few for the holiday show. Oh, because we're going to have steel, aren't we? Steel and Wackerly. It's, it's, a, it's yes. an annual tradition. So uh, they're, they're going to be coming on. Also, it's my brother's 50th birthday this year. So I'm not sure. I haven't actually made plans on when we're recording the holiday show, but it's going to be the next couple of weeks. So call us, 323-522-4032, with some holiday wishes. Or you can just email the show at sickeronpodcast at gmail.com. So this first call here is from Stuart who's giving us a follow-up on his drunk transvestite father. Amazing. Hi, guys. Stuart Ruski here with a follow-up that drunk dad story. First of all, sorry to disappoint, but I am actually British. I'm not German. I only grew up in Germany. So my d- So he was a Brit that lived abroad. He grew up in Germany. Right. Yeah. It wasn't a Elsa Schiebel for the SS kind of tranny. <laughs> He was a beer-drinking, hairy kind of guy, which would have made him a Susan Boyle kind of tranny. <laughs> so nothing to fantasize about, all you perverts out there. <laughs> he didn't come down in his lingerie to tell us. Were you, when Susan Boyle started becoming famous, were you guys like, God damn it, another ugly English person that's now going to be famous and everyone's going to be like, oh, that's what all English women look like. If she didn't have such a low IQ... And maybe, you know, she was maybe not mentally all there. She wouldn't have fucking won. I don't get what everyone's like. She's got a beautiful voice. It's like, no, she doesn't. Like, what? what I is thought this she had like an about? opera voice. Isn't she like a, some kind of like operatic type voice? I didn't even think she was a good voice? opera singer. Like all the best opera singers are a bit sexy. Look at Maria Callas. Are you tell me you wouldn't bang her over Jackie O. Fuck yes, I would. <laughs> like Susan Boyle, she's well, a virgin. Is she still a virgin? I'm sure she's got some ass and sun. No, she's still a virgin, mate. What happened to her? You never see her anymore. Because, like, she couldn't handle it. They should never have let her win because they should have been like, she can't handle being famous. Well, that's why I just wonder what happened because now everyone's going to be like, oh, great. Now she's the barometer of all English women's attractiveness, you know? <laughs> Susan Boyle. <laughs> Bless. 
<laughs> he didn't come down in his lingerie to tell us kids about his little fetish. He left a letter on the breakfast table for us kids to read. Well, that's worse. My dad also didn't dress up in public very much. He would occasionally go on nighttime drives all dressed up, though. So now I'm thinking about it. He might have been out there cruising. Yes. Well, the most memorable... Wait, wait, wait. So... So he liked to cross-dress, but does that mean he was also homosexual? Like he was into men? Is that when he's in cruising? Yeah, he must have been. He's not cru- He's not cruising out. At, like, come on, D. Do straight men go out dressed in um, women's clothes cruising for straight women? <laughs> you night? never know. You never know. No, but D. I, I I've seen of... an Al Pacino film that completely describes this situation, and it does not star straight women. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, but I always thought that um, if you're into cross-dressing it doesn't mean that you're necessarily gay like you can be a cross-dresser oh, yeah. and you're into women yeah like edward was married yeah there's a lot of happy, uh, but it sounds like his dad is cruising for some uh like btk wants some pickle btk would fuck up fuck anything that crossed his path path he's in the he's well it sounds like uh yeah this guy was definitely cruising for uh tooling for some anus <laughs> he was the episode was uh, when one of my uncles came over to stay as long as I can remember, they always got into fights. So this time it had to happen when he was all dressed up in full makeup. <laughs> it was in the middle of the night when he decided to come out to his drunk brother. As you can imagine, he was mercilessly ridiculed and all hellbreak loose with them fighting and squabbling on the floor. Well, I'm picturing the dad wearing like a dress with like, you know, fishnet stockings and high heels, just like beating the shit out of his brother. I'm picturing Freddie Mercury in the video. Which uh, which video is it? Where they're all dressed in um, they're all dressed up like women. They're dressed in drag. Radio Gaga. Um, <laughs> the, everyone knows the, the famous Queen video. Where they're all in drag. I'm imagining he looks exactly like Freddie Mercury, but really, really fat and hairy. Wow! I and and fighting free. with the brother. There we go. That that would have been a yeah. great. That would have been just to be a fly on the wall in that moment as he's coming out. To his drunk brother, wearing like you know, his wife's Sunday best. That's Some makeup amazing. on. I imagine he's got blue eyeshadow and probably pink or red lips applied really badly. I also would have kept that letter, wouldn't you? I'd have probably framed it. Oh yeah. I wonder if you still letter. actually, Stuart. If you still have that letter, I'd love for you to read it on air. Like yeah. read it to us on air, and we'll 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 discuss it here on the show. How do you even write that in a letter and be like, "Hello, my ten-year-old children. It's your father here, and I have a secret. I wear your mum's underwear and Laura Ashley dresses, and then I go tooling for anus at nighttime." I, don't, I have no idea how. I don't know if he came out to them like that, or if he just came out to them just saying he's into cross-dressing. But I, I would like to hear, or I'd like to hear that letter. That was a fucking scary sight, seeing your dad all doled up and your uncle almost Greco-Roman style wrestling on the floor. <sighs> so there's another little insight into my story. There's more if you like it. Hope you enjoyed it. Catch you later. Stuart out. Stuart, I definitely enjoyed it. I'm actually living vicariously through this. I um, want more of these tales of like your your dad. We need yeah, to the rabbi... The never wore my mother's clothing unfortunately that you know about <laughs> yeah never well i guess he never told me about it have you ever put chick's clothing on just for like 
You know, what I mean? for like kind of for sexy purposes and not just for funny purposes. No, like, no, like I don't even. I don't I'm trying to think if I've really done any gender bending like Halloween costumes. No, I've never really. It's not really. It doesn't really. You know, blow my dress up. Did you do the so thing that? <laughs> yeah, so to speak. Did you do the thing? Because you're like a, a 90s kind of, uh, you were a 90s industrial goth. Did you not do the thing where you would cut up tights and wear them as sleeves? No, I never not, did that. I was more of like fishnets. a... I, I didn't really, I wasn't that kind of goth. I was more of like a ministry type, you know, leather jacket, that kind of gross dreads type of goth, torn jeans. But I never like, I never was like guyliner and fishnets. Yeah, I had friends that did that, but that wasn't my thing. I think you'd suit a little bit of guyliner. Yeah, I don't you know. do get your nails painted. I don't get my fingernails painted. Yeah, but you get your toenails painted. I have had a pedicure, but it's been years. But I have had a pedicure before, which is an amazing thing go. to do, and I highly recommend it. Yeah, I'd do you that again. Touch of your feminine side. Oh, I loved it. It was, you know, it was something I just never really thought about. And then I forget which girlfriend it was. But one of my ex girlfriends was like, "You've never had a pedicure." It's not like my toenails are disgusting either. It's just, it just never occurred yeah. to me to do it. And you've never, you said you've never had a pedicure. It's kind of not, we don't have the kind of walk-in bars like you do here. We have like nail bars, but not like pedicure bars. I would feel weird getting like it's, my feet out in public. Well, like it's that. also weird too, because it's almost like you feel like a colonialist. Like these like Vietnamese ladies are sitting here like you know, taking care, rubbing your feet. It's just, it, it made me feel weird and I'd never done it. But, oh my God, it feels amazing. You're in a, mas a massage chair. They're playing rom-coms. I think it was like 50 First Dates is playing. It was, yeah, no, it was a, it was a, a wonderful experience. You're sitting there with again. your iced coffee. I would do it again. Yeah, no, I had my iced coffee just Let's hanging out. It. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd definitely do it again. Um, Stuart, yeah, if you can find the original letter and read it to us, I'd like to, I'd like to hear that. Second, I'd like to know the reactions from other family members. Like, what did your mom say about this? Did she stay with him? Was this did something she she, they incorporated into their private life? Like, how did, yeah, like, did they buy clothes together? Like, did she buy two outfits, knowing he would wear one? And stretch it out. I'd be so annoyed if, like, somebody took your favorite dress and then they stretched it out. Like, it's hard to find clothes that you like. I'd be, I'd be bitter about it. Bitters. Bitters. But yeah, I'm definitely very, very interested in learning more about this. Thank you, Stuart. Uh, this next call here is uh, Vibrato. Remember him? He called in around Halloween, just kind of giving us uh, a little more context to his call. Hey, D and Kate. It's Vibrato. Once again, I wanted to clarify some of the things I said on Halloween. I uh, heard your response. Thanks. And uh, I'll try and get to that. So the TV show first CBC that we were doing was called Zed, uh, spelled U.S. Uh, letters uh, Z-E-D. And it was like a variety show that had music and news and, and just about anything that was, it was really open. So my friend was a filmmaker and he uh, was working with them as a correspondent. So he did documentaries and he did different fun things like one thing we did once was uh go to a, a local um, cemetery and uh, he interviewed me as someone who was uh, a non-living um, facilitator so i would uh, speak with um, the non-living and uh, play so you're like a medium yeah, like communicate with the dead Wait, what uh what channel is this on zed is it english TV i've not channel? heard of it so okay, so must I, I don't recall this either, but I kind of like I kind of like uh, where it's going. I, I, I think I'd probably be I would into watch this. this show. I would watch this show. 
games with them and give them uh, rolling pin massages. It, it, was, it was ridiculous, but um, that kind of thing. So it could be funny or it could be uh, avant-garde or it could be news. So in this particular instance, uh, he decided that um, he'd want to do a piece um, since we we're going to the Ukraine anyway uh, on what was going on with the Orange Revolution. So we got a camera and we, we just uh, interviewed people there. That's... I wonder how you get funding for this. And that's cool. They, they fly like they fly them out to the Ukraine to film yeah, the Orange cool. Revolution. Yeah, I'd be into that. I'd totally be into that. I wonder if Zed will sponsor uh, Sick and Wrong. Zed's still around, vibrato, because uh, I'm interested in getting in on this. I, I also want to get in on a piece of this action. Take me to the Ukraine. I want to go to Kiev. What that was about. Now, in terms of my outfit, uh, it's I well, it's, it's like the probably the ninth generation of of the vibrating massage so basically it's a bunch of vibrating motors and it's connected through wires to a switch i turn on and then i um i become like a standing um massage chair in a way uh yeah. and uh, that wait this was his halloween costume human vibrator it's a human vibrator <laughs> well not like a, i don't it sounds like a vibrate like a vibrating chair like he's like i don't know if it's like a sexual vibrator. I don't think it's like, you know, a dildo type vibrator. Maybe. Once I was around at a mate's house, and this is a bit of an inappropriate comment I was for at the time. It was like a casual mate, somebody who I like knew, and like it was like, you know, no fret. There's not no fret of anything ever, anything ever happening between us. We're just mates. And his washing machine was going off and we were smoking weed and it was a really loud washing machine. And I pointed it out. I was like, whoa, your washing machine's like fucking crazy. He was like, why don't you go and sit on it? Whoa. Did yeah, you? Yeah, I thought that crossed the line. Did no. you? No. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if people can, though. I've never tried to sit on a washing machine to make myself come. I just think they're, they're a faster and quicker way. What was your response? Were you just like, my word? I was like, like were you gross. offended? Did you clutch I pearls? I you you would say that to me. Me too. <laughs> Did you just ignore it? I think I laughed. I can't really, I've not really ever seen him ever since then. It is kind of a creepy thing. It's a very forward thing to say. After being friends and the way he said it implied, why don't you sit on it? Did like, he have like one of the wasn't... sinister like, like pedophile laughs? Like, hey, hey, hey. Yeah. yeah, and then he started twiddling his little mustache. <laughs> and that's when I knew. We can never be friends. Was he wearing your mum's clothing? <laughs> Stuart Stark. <laughs> it was Stuart Stark. First happened, the first time I ever wore that was in 2007 at the um, uh, WeHo, the West Hollywood um, Halloween Parade. So that, that was the first one. Was, and that, that was a tremendous amount of fun. Um, but I've had uh, upgrades and uh, new suits since then. So that's it. All right. That's... So it's his thing. His thing is to go as a human vibrator. That's his costume. Every year. Wow, I kind of like it. I kind of like where he's going with that. You know, uh, I work with a guy who's very creative with his Halloween costumes. In my work, they, they do a big company-wide like Halloween contest. Um, this year, it was all over Zoom. But yeah, people go all out. I typically don't care <laughs> i don't really participate i never never have but anyway he this guy is an older guy but he's really creative with his costumes he always makes costumes out of like household goods so this year he made like a a godzilla type like gojira outfit 
out of business cards that he's collected since like 1983. That's insane. It was, it was insane. I'll, I'll see if I can find it. It was crazy. It was like he made the whole thing out of like business cards that he like glued together and painted green. I mean, he won. Wow. Yeah. And then uh, I remember the first year I think I was working there, he'd made like a porcupine outfit with like 20,000 pencils. What like, the fuck? <laughs> it's bizarre. Like, it's, he's a really creative dude. What does he do with them afterwards? I'd ask him that. He must like he must chuck them away or set fire to them. You know, I don't know. What he, I don't know if he just throws away these these household. I mean, maybe he uses the pencils for writing things. You don't need twenty thousand pencils. You don't need. <laughs> it's a very uh, elaborate after, costume. After I'd spent two months making my nine eleven costume, and then. We, I chucked it in the river. I did have a very like sad, empty feeling. Probably like how the people on 9-11 actually felt. That's how I felt the day after I had to get rid of my costume. So he probably gets very depressed. November 1st, he's probably in a bit of a funk. Doesn't know what to do with himself. Well, you ca- probably caused your own 9-11 for all the trout that live in that river that had to uh, be exposed to all those plastic chemicals from your um, disdainful outfit. It was a great outfit. I also just recently <laughs> found pictures of when I was the 9-11 office worker from the same year I posted them to Discord. I still think next year it should be Anne Frankenstein. You could pull it yeah, off. I'll do it. I love, st- I love staying indoors. I'm just like Anne. I love staying indoors, and I'm kind of scared of Nazis, although I do find them sexual, just like Anne. I want, to find, I want a video, Vibrato, of this human vibrator suit in action if you could send it to us because yes, I'm, I'm having a difficult time picturing what it looks like but anyway there's a couple more seconds left all the information i think you want otherwise uh let me know and i'll call back all right uh lift my balls thanks <laughs> i wonder if he like goes around just hugging people and then vibrating like, them yeah <laughs> i would like to know if he's ever gotten himself into a bad situation with this human vibra uh, vibrating uh, costume and like, like how many builds is he on situation? now? Is he on like twentieth build of it? Yeah, I don't know. I wonder. I he wonder if it's ever. Well, maybe. I mean, I would like to. I mean, he says no. He said the ninth generation, so it's been nine. It's almost like Iron Man's outfits. You know, like yeah, he had the I first would... one all the way through, like that cool one they had in like Avengers. I would like to see build one, build two, build three up until like its present day, like where he just thinks he's got it nailed now. Yeah, I wonder. Um, this next call is about uh, a guy who had a, uh, an incident with a banjo string. <laughs> oh, God. Hi, D. Hi, Keith. Mash here again. Just thought I'd give you another ring because I had a conversation on Facebook the other week about foreskins. Um, I had a conversation. With- We've never had a conversation about foreskins on this show. That's definitely a topic. Oh, we ever bro- I don't know if we've ever broached that topic. I think this is the first time you've ever heard what a banjo string is. Yeah, it's a, this, is, this is new to me. One who's circumcised um, and just basically we had a discussion about the advantages and disadvantages and stuff like that and which one, how you live day to day with a circumcised cock or an uncircumcised cock. It was quite fascinating, actually. Not a lot of people realise the differences in it. But... Um, I put the conversation in the Discord anyway if you want to have a raise. It's quite fascinating uh, to learn both sides. Anyway, I thought I'd ring in and tell you a story about when I split your banjo. Um, uh, God. I, I'm, I'm kind of surprised. I'm a little stunned how common this is. A lot of guys have had this. You've had, didn't you? Your friend had a horrible experience with a banjo string. 
yeah but he was a dick to her so it was kind of fine in the end that she <laughs> he deserved it but yeah, i'm surprised it. at how common this happens you never you, well obviously you never really hear about it in this country but i mean is it like what do you think the percentage is out of 10 guys how many how many guys one uh, you know from one to ten have uh, experienced a banjo string being snapped i'd say at least three uh, out of ten three guys, out of maybe ten three or four maybe three or four Oh, God. Sounds painful. I mean, it's a very delicate piece of skin. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, you never know what the type of vagina you're going to get. It can be a rough ride. It can be a rough ride down there. <laughs> Wait, basically, I was with my ex who liked pegging us and doing butthole stuff. And uh, we're dry humping once and just going at it, having a bit of fun, having a laugh. Next thing I know, it's warm. Sensation. Oh Sensation. no! What the fuck's that? Turn the light on. Look down. Blood all over. She thought she was going. Hey God, I'm so sorry and stuff like this because she thought she came on. So I was like, Oh no, don't worry about it. It's fine. Don't worry about it. stuff like that. I went to go to the bathroom, clean myself up, clean myself off. Next thing I know, pissing the blood all over, all over. I'm like, fuck, fuck, what's this? Isn't she covered in blood? Uh, they were dry humping, so. I, oh, so it sure. must I just be through his pants or something. Ugh. Yeah. Anyway, I, did, I didn't go to the doctors because I, I was like 16 or something at the time. So I thought, I'm going to leave it, wipe it, wipe it down, roll some toilet all around it, it'll be fine. Anyway, <laughs> two weeks later, I went to a beer festival down in Durham, um, smashing up pianos and shit like that. Yeah, smashing up pianos with fucking sledgehammers and axes and Drinking. What, that's a beer? Is that normal at a beer festival? You smash pianos? I've never been to this uh, beer festival in Durham, but it sounds fucking fun if that's what they're doing. It's a I very Durham check it thing out. to like smash up a piano. That's very <laughs> Durham to me. Um, yeah, that's interesting. It's also interesting how he went two weeks without doing anything about it. He just went two weeks. Saw so how it healed. It's obviously like, if it's healing fine, why would you go to the hospital or anything if you're like oh it's not bleeding it's not hurting i hope he changed the toilet paper bandage <laughs> you know arms fucking lager and shit like that it was a horrible messy weird and uh got talking to this lass and uh got cracking on and stuff like that she was fucking minging but i thought oh, i'm gonna go for it <laughs> so um next i know we're playing with each other in this middle of this field farmer's field in the middle of nowhere she goes to reach for me cock and just this big horrible pain sensation. I'm like, fuck, that really hurts. I'm like, and I had to tell her what happened. So I'm sorry, I split the banjo a couple of weeks ago, I can't do it. She the look of disappointment on her face. I fell fucking shit. Still licked up. I'm amazed this guy was able to like let's get back in action, even though his dick is still healing. Well, they obviously couldn't. I like the fact at the end there, he went, I still licked her, though. <laughs> Looking out this minger in the middle of a field in Durham. <laughs> I do kind of like his uh, attitude to, to, you know, towards her as well. It's like she was minging, but fuck it. Why not? I'm horny. That is right. Come on. Is that not every man's attitude towards sex either? It's like a woman looks at you in a bar and it's like you could be like, I'm not, you know, she's not amazing, but fuck it. I'm drunk. Well, that's the thing. It depends on the level of inebriation. Yeah, see, so it all women aren't wired that way. Like, I'm, I'm not like that. I have to have a fish finger sandwich given to me, <laughs> and then I will shag. <laughs> and then the guy gets fish fingers. The, the look of disappointment on her face. I fell for and shit. Still licked her out though in the middle of a field. So. 
when you win it. Um, so I'm just wondering, like, Dee, you're obviously circumcised. Can you actually split your banjo if you tried or not? Or is that not a thing? Anyway, thanks. <laughs> See you later. Keep it sick. I like Marsh. No, they cut my banjo string off. Like, I don't have a banjo string. So what do you think the benefits to not having a, ban like a banjo string and a foreskin are? So you versus... can't you can't get them fucking ripped apart. That's a, that's a yeah. benefit. <laughs> you know, I think that's a good thing. But your little sausage is out there in the wind. So any, any, any like wound to your gland will literally be on your gland. If you've got like a foreskin, then it's got a little bit of protection around it. I take offense at little sausage. Um, let's say medium sized. Um, no, you know, I don't know. I think, um, well, I think I have the advantage of not having to deal with smegma. So I can go like five days without showering. I'm not going to have like a cheesy substance emitting from my glands penis. I would love to go like just a couple of weeks where you don't mention Fosters and a couple of weeks where you don't mention smegma. Two, Never going to happen. Never going to happen. I can smegma, tell you. <laughs> smegma, honestly, just doesn't really happen all that often. I think nurses will obviously see more smegma than people like. But you know what's, what's funny about that is Aussies say the same thing about Fosters, yet it's the their national beer. So... It's not their national beer. <laughs> it's not. Um, I, you know, I don't know. I, I, I've heard that it makes your dick less sensitive, which might be a good thing for the woman because then I'm not going to you know, prematurely ejaculate. I'll last like another 15 seconds, so <laughs> yeah. a total of a minute and 30 now instead of a minute and 15, but I've, I've heard it does that. Um, I don't know. I don't think it really matters one way or another. I do think just visually, just like going purely for aesthetics, cut dicks look nicer than a foreskin. After watching Naked Attraction, I'd never really <laughs> seen for, that many foreskin dicks, but it's like, what the fuck? Because some of them just look like a, a normal foreskin. Some of them look like a balloon, tied, like a tied off balloon. Some of them look like a deformed elephant's trunk. Some of them do. Hey, D, just get, guess what just came onto British Netflix? Naked Attraction? Naked Attraction. Jesus Christ, yeah. No, I remember like that one, we were in York um, on our mini honeymoon. It's like we we couldn't fall asleep because that room was kind of fucked up and it was hot in there and the air conditioner wasn't working. Turn on the TV and it's just Naked Attraction. We watched like back-to-back -back episodes, all foreskins. <laughs> like, I don't know, like probably saw like 10 dicks in a row. Well a lot of dicks that night. But they, but that's the thing. There's a lot of variation. Whereas, like, I think when you are circumcised, it pretty much all looks the same. Maybe that's why yeah. Americans like it. So it's just aesthetics. You know, so you all look that's the it. same, probably. Anyway, um, wow, thank you, Marster, for calling in. Did we come up with a Mash. nickname for him? Mash? He's called Mash. Mash. Yeah. Okay, yeah, I was calling him Marsh. But I thought we came up with another nickname for, for Mash. I think there was a few nicknames being bandied around the Discord, Discord, but his name is Mash, and that is his name. I like and Mash. I, I want to hear cool. some more, some more like, sordid The tales. Adventures of like, Mash. He's 16, and he's getting pegged. Like, there's not many, many open Wait, this kid's, He's 16 only 16 old. years old. <laughs> no, he said that when that story oh, happened, how oh. he broke his bandage thing was when he was 16. She, she, his girlfriend at the time used to peg him when he was 16. God, that's crazy. He knows who he's into, you know? That's good. How do you prevent a slack ass if you're having so much pegging from such a young age? Bring him with some tips. Yeah, that, that is a concern. A lot of uh, aging porn stars have to wear adult diapers. So, MASH, yeah. that could be I... in your future. <laughs> anyway, people, uh, give us a call, 323-522-4032.
Also, check out the second show on Patreon. It's a whole show. It's an entire second show. It's not just like a news story and some phone calls. It's like a whole fucking show where I take like, you know what I've been trying to do is recycle a lot of the old promos that we used to use back in the wackily years and things like that. Because people sent me so much stuff over the years and I just never really use them because most of it sucks. But I don't mind playing on the second show. Who cares? Anyway, this week um, we catch up with Joe Kelly. Um, but since I'm going to, you know, since I'm going to Seattle next week weekend, I pre-recorded it and got to catch up with Joe Kelly, find out about his uh, his dating woes on the Tinder, on the Tinder in the Bay Area. It's it's kind of horrific, not as horrific as Scotland, but it is kind of horrific. I don't know. Um, I think part of me would rather have a Scottish bird. At least they're down to earth. Well, at least like you can usually tell their gender. That's the thing. Didn't Sometimes. You send me <laughs> one of the women that he had swiped right on, and it was a bearded lady who wanted to procreate, and JoJo went on like dates with her. He didn't go on a date with her. But he's, jo- he JoJo always sends screenshots of these, like, I don't know, monstrosities that he meets on the Tinder and <laughs> the Hinge or whatever. Anyway, we'll, we, we catch up with him. But the format of the second show is a bit different. You know, it's usually a little more personal, discuss some current life events. And then uh, we typically do a news story and some phone calls as well. So it comes out every Sunday, uh, just like the main show, for only five bucks a month. And for just a few bucks more, you can get our Sick and Wrong News segment. This week, uh, Kate and special guest Claudia and Kate Rambo um, did a celebrity news roundup, talking about all the celebs. Yeah, it's uh, funny. Uh, we've just had a phone call off, um, off a, a Geordie. Well, it's Claudia's neck of the woods, too. She's a fellow Northern, Northern slag just like me so wait, did you do mostly english like uk celebs or just celebs in general uh, well yeah we did like a celebrity roundup we we dished uh uk or you or american uh, celebs. the best part is is that claudia had never seen pictures of ed sheeran's tattoos or pete davidson's tattoos so i show her and we talk about their tattoos in extreme detail i'm trying to think of whose tattoos are worse ed sheeran's Ed Sheeran's his tattoos it. are terrible. What about a uh, Machine Gun Kelly? Throw him I've in the mix. I've actually never looked at his tattoos. I'll They're look next. awful. They're awful. Um, yeah, all three. It's a tough choice. Also, uh, this week on uh, Overkill or bonus uh, minisode, um, Kate and Claudia were discussing botched executions throughout history and revealing their preferred methods. So uh, all that and more here on the Patreon, uh, Patreon.com/sickandwrong. You know, if you really want to give us some holiday cheer, sign up for the Patreon. Get something in return. Um, also, uh, there is a, a holiday. I think they're just running like a holiday sale throughout the, the month of December at the uh, T Public Store. So if you want to go get some stocking stuffers, go to sickerongpodcast.com slash shop and click on the picture of the Pope. Uh, finally here, Sigurong Song of the Week. I think there's just no way I could avoid playing this one, which I'm surprised I've never actually played on the show. Um, but I think just the uh, the most appropriate and relevant song we could uh, play for this show is Nick Cave's Mercy Seat, uh, which is a song that was uh, written by Nick Cave, music by Mick Harvey, and performed by uh, Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds on my favorite Nick Cave record, uh, Tender Prey, which came out in 1988. But it's, the song tells the story of a man who's about to be executed by an electric chair, and he's just kind of pondering mm-hmm. over what's about to happen. Probably his most well-known song. What's interesting, I've seen Nick Cave live a few times. He always does a different version of it. That's cool. Um, yeah, and every, sometimes a shorter version, sometimes like a 10-minute version. Sometimes it's an encore, sometimes it's like earlier in the show, but he always does that song 
uh, every live show. Anyway, we're going to end the show here uh, with that. Um, thank you, Michelle, for coming on the show. And uh, people, I think her book, Death Row, The Final Minutes, would make the perfect Secret Santa gift for the office. I agree. I think Such so. Such a good book. It is a really good one. Anyway, we'll be back next week with episode 821. Until then, take it sleazy.
contains a drip pan. All executees during the execution lose control of their bodily functions. They urinate and defecate in their pants on the chair. This normally winds up on the chair and on the floor directly beneath the chair. This is a disgusting thing when it occurs. It's a very inhumane thing to allow a person who's being executed, a human being, and who should be afforded the greatest dignity of all because he's losing his life. It's a disgusting and a degrading thing to allow him to defecate and, quite frankly, piss on the floor. <laughs> 